0: Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This particular interview uh, is a little over two years in the making. We've been playing telephone tag, social media tag, and texting tag just to make it happen. But this is a busy veteran who's been on the front lines helping warfighters on so many different levels. And when he was helping them, he was helping himself. I just want to say that I'm, I'm humbled to have Boone Cutler on this episode. You're going to enjoy the story. I am sure you will. And thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light 'em up. My name is John Crotech, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero we're here to honor the wisdom of america's most valuable asset for combat veterans we're authentic we're empowering we're american our guest today on straight out of combat radio is one of the most well-known veteran ambassadors and advocates to be found anywhere on the planet we've been playing telephone social media an email tag for a couple of years now so to say that i'm super stoked to finally have him on the show is like a a serious understatement boone cutler's story and his list of great deeds is as long as the declaration of independence and i'm not joking there's a lot of material here i'm going to briefly go through his bio but we really want to get the boone in hear his story but here it goes Boone, as you all know, and if you don't know, is an author, a columnist, a music video director, and a warfighter rights leader. He holds the distinguished honor of being the first nationally recognized radio talk show personality who is also a combat veteran from these wars, the current war, actually. Boone's message is pretty simple. America has lost faith in what they used to believe in. We're the heroes of Hollywood. America has become disgusted with the political climate of today. So the only place to turn and trust for leadership is the warfighter. And he's been doing a damn good job of that since its outset. He began writing his Iraq war inspired autobiographical account of what he experienced titled Voodoo and Seder City. During his combat tour in Iraq and completed it during a two year recovery from wartime injuries at Walter Reed Army Medical Center during the neglect scandal of 2007. After his recovery, and a lot of you know this, he began to see a major void in the warfighter community. So he decided to approach Fox News affiliate 99.1 FM Talk with the concept of a new show that focused on national, international, and social events based on the warfighter's perspective several years ago, eight years ago already, so he's grown up. His show, Tipping Point with Boone Cutler, was launched in in 2011, providing a weekly platform for Boone's raw paratrooper no holds barred style. His show quickly becoming a hit over the airwaves and online with an audience of fellow warfighters and curious mainstream American listeners. That's fantastic. In June of 2014, Tipping Point with Boone Cutler be- began its partnership with KNEWS News, 107.3 FM in Reno, Nevada, airing for three hours every Saturday. Freaking phenomenal, man. In 2010, Boone founded the National Warfighter Symposium to bring much needed attention to warfighter issues such as post-combat life. We all know about that transition, particularly the alarming rates of warfighter suicide and homelessness. Again, Boone Cutler cutting edge on the front lines, on the battlefield and back home too. America currently loses at least 23 warfighters, 22 veterans and one active duty a day to suicide. This is a number that Boone has made his mission to combat with his creation of the Spartan Pledge. Warfighters promise not to take their own lives and instead vow to find a new mission to help one another. He has chosen GallantFew.org, founded by a U.S. Army Ranger Carl Monger, and everybody knows him, as his signature charity. In 2012, Boone was diagnosed with early-onset Parkinson's disease, secondary to a blast injury in Iraq. He is currently starting and has been working on a campaign for more awareness on the issue this issue in the warfighter community in fact something pretty cool in the 2012 2013 term governor sandoval of nevada appointed boone cutler himself to the interagency council on veterans affairs boone has been very involved and continues to be involved with the arts after seeing first the healing effects of music therapy i also know he's involved with cbds and hemp and all that and we'll get to that He also works as music video producer director for Redcon One Music Group, which is pretty cool. He's going to tell us about that. 2014, Boone became the national spokesperson for the warfighter rights movement, whose mission is to end post-traumatic stress disorder phobia that results in discrimination against warfighters in employment, housing, and in the judicial process. Boone also spoke at the 2016 World Peace Conference. So, (laughs) I kind of say, "Welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio, Boone," and thank you for being here. And I'm glad you're here, and so are millions of others who have heard you and have followed your distinguished career, not only in the army but outside of the army. So, thanks for being here, Boone.
1: Hey, brother, thanks for having me. I, you know, I'm listening to my own bio as you're reading it, and I'm like, "Wow, who's that guy?" You know, he's, he's been kind of busy, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm just Boone Man. And I'm happy to be here with you, brother, and I'm happy to talk about whatever we need to talk about, the warfighter community. There's a lot of issues going on, and, and, and these issues are, are constantly ebbing and flowing. And guys like yourself that are out there keeping your finger on the pulse, making sure people know what's going on, man, that, that's really good. That's what counts. And I think it's, it's how we make sure we are, are, are moving forward and are, are not getting stuck. And you're right. You, you know, I, I don't have anything in my bio about CBD, about cannabinoids, stem cells. You know, There's been a lot of stuff that's gone on the last few years. That uh, that's not in that bio. That has been that have been the 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 next frontier per se on, on what the warfighter community is, is doing and, and needs to do.
0: Couldn't have said it any better than you just did, Boone. You know, I know this show is not about us as individuals, but this particular episode it is about you and your story. And you know, man, tell us what molded Boone Cutler. What 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 was your childhood like? What was the home life like? What did you listen to in music? I mean, what got you to the army? Tell us about that, man.
1: Well, what got me to the army was the Panama invasion primarily, you know. I mean, I I grew up in the military. My father was was in the Marine Corps, my grandfather was in the Marine Corps. My grandfather was a prisoner of war in in World War II. Uh he was captured on Guam December 8, 1941. It is recall through your history that the um Pearl Harbor attack was on December seventh. So he captured the day after the Pearl Harbor attack, and he spent the entire war in captivities. He was the him and the guys he was captured with were the longest held prisoners of war in World War Two, and that shaped me a lot, you know. And my father serving in the Marine Corps and, and serving in Vietnam that shaped me a lot. These things it was these these family points of, Hey, this is what you do. And, and when you get older, this is, this is the way you conduct yourself. And, and it's kind of like, you know, family business stuff. So when I was about 18 years old, I looked at home when I was about 17. And, and when I was 18 years old, the uh, Panama invasion happened. And that was, it felt like a cue, you know, that was the, the, cue for me to, to go spend my time and to, to, to sign the line, take the oath and do my part. And so, you know, that's what I did. So I joined the army and that's kind of how I grew up. And that's, that's why I joined the army.
0: So did you go to Benning? your 11 Bravo right off the bat? Yep.
1: Went to Benning, did the 11 Bravo thing for the first, my first enlistment. And then after that, I, I reclassified to, um, 37 Foxtrot, uh, psychological operations.
0: So what was, you know, so you had this great background. Thank you for sharing that story about your granddad. I mean, that's pretty freaking phenomenal that he even survived. So it's definitely good stock you're coming from, brother. Let me ask you this when you got the basic training at Benning, was it a culture shock or was it just second nature to you i wouldn't
1: say it was culture shock at all. I think the, I think one of the most interesting things is and i I've, i 've stayed in contact or or, or reestablished contact with with one of my drill sergeants from Fort Benning. His name is Drill Sergeant Demetroff. I went to go see him actually earlier this year in Michigan. Uh, uh, awesome. He had a uh, a party, the, uh, like a retirement party. and So I went out to Michigan and, and saw him and got to hang out with him and got to tell some stories and it was kind of cool. But he had been in the Marines before he joined the Army and I had joined the Army and my family had been in the Marine Corps and I thought that Because you're young, you want to do something a little bit different. And and my whole thing is I wanted to jump out of airplanes, you know. And I I couldn't get a contract in the Marine Corps uh, to go jump out of airplanes at that time. And when I heard the news when we invaded Panama... It wasn't that America hadn't made a Panama. It was, you know, the news came on that said the 82nd Airborne Division has just jumped into Panama. And when I heard those words, I was like, you know, that was, that was my calling. I wanted, that's where I wanted to go. That's what I want to do. I want to jump out of airplanes. And so the Army gave me a contract that, you know, that I could be airborne. And that's what I wanted to do. So I, 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 go to Benning and I'm thinking, okay, I'm in the army, I'm away from the Marine Corps. It's, it's, it's a little bit of the, a different culture, you know, and sure as, as all could be, uh, my drill sergeant had been in the Marine Corps. So as, as I'm getting off the cattle car, at Benning. And as I'm getting off, I see this drill sergeant standing there, but he's got the EGA, the the Marine Corps Eagle, Eagle Globe and Anchor. He's got the this death before dishonor tattoo on his arm. And I'm thinking, how the hell did I join the army and still end up with a guy who was in the Marine Corps as my drill sergeant? So <laughs> I, I, I could not escape the Marine Corps. You know, I, there's always been that influence there. But yeah, I, I got the Benning and it wasn't really culture shock for me. I don't think as much as as a lot of other guys. You know, I mean, it was different. There was definitely, uh, you know, you definitely knew you're you were going along for the ride, which is the way that it should be, and and you were going to get that military education you signed up to do and to get, and and it was good, man. It was really good. I think it was a uh, the right thing for me at the right time, and and uh, I was proud to be
0: there. Awesome, you know, so. You went to Benning for jump school? Yeah,
1: I went to Benning for, for, for basic AIT, which is OSIT training, one station unit training, and then for uh, airborne school, yeah.
0: So, how did you feel, man? So, you're going, obviously, karma had something to do with the Marine drill sergeant showing up, but how did you feel when you got those jump wings? And did any of your family come see you when you graduated? Yeah, my
1: father came out and he actually pinned my blood wings on me at Benning. And that was, it was a very proud moment for me. So it was a proud day. And he was proud and I was proud. And yeah, he, had, he came out and pinned my wings and got to see the ceremony. And it was good, man. It was really good.
0: Very cool. So where did you go for, to your first duty station? Was there anything going on at that time or was it just business as usual?
1: First duty station, I, I shipped over to Germany. And I was in, um, I started out in a, um, of all places, I mean, I you know I joined the military because I wanted to to jump out of airplanes. At the 82nd Airborne Division they send me to a leg unit in Germany that's guarding a Pershing missile. So I mean, <laughs> it, it it couldn't yeah. be couldn't couldn't have been further from the infantry at the time. But um, that that at that time they were closing down the uh, those types of units in in Europe, and so I wasn't there very long. So I was at the that two four infantry in Neum, Germany, which was i mean a fantastic place to be as a young 18 year old man you know just just living on the economy and it wasn't wasn't isolated at all where our barracks was literally right there in the city and, and we'd go downtown and we could hang out with the locals and it was beautiful i mean the the area was beautiful germany was beautiful the people were beautiful uh the beer was fantastic. The food was amazing. I mean, really, it was just a, a just a wonderful experience for for an eighteen year old man, and you know, on his own for the first time, and and really just kind of taking it all in, absorbing everything. Because we could get in a car, and you know, we could rent cars even then, awesome. and over there, and we we'd rent cars, and you know, we'd drive to different countries. I went to, I mean, I went everywhere, you know, in Europe, and enjoyed that. I really enjoyed taking in the culture and, and being a part of you know, taking advantage of being on that co- continent and and seeing things and enjoying the food and, and you know, trying to stay out of trouble and, and, and all that. And then the unit shut down and they shipped us out to, uh, the unit designation went from 2-4 infantry to 1-4 infantry and they shipped us to Hohenfels, Germany, the uh, 7th Army Training Center in Hohenfels, Germany. So uh, I became uh op four in, in Europe and they did that for a little while and and that was good, too. I mean, the amount of training was was pretty intense. There was a lot of training for anybody who's been to Hohenfels, you know, being private party or a permanent party in, in Hohenfels, Germany. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of training. You spent a lot of time in the box. And that was good. I mean, as far as training goes, I don't think, um, you know, you really couldn't get more. So it was happening. And it was it, it more force on force. It was constant force on force because it was the, the, you know, the opposing forces, the op four. And so that was really good. And then finally, after I left there, I ended up at the 82nd. And I uh, was in 2nd Battalion, 505th Parachute, infantry regiment, the 82nd Airborne Division. And that's home. I mean, that's I, I've served in other military units since then. And, but Fort Bragg is definitely, that's the place that feels like home to me. And I loved it. That was great. Good time.
0: What year was that, Boone, when you... You know, obviously, the time in Europe sounds like it was pretty magical besides all the training taking place. But, you know, what year did you come back to the States? Was that before nine one one, before nine eleven?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. We're talking, uh, that was 1992.
0: So you're back on Bragg. Some people call uh, Fayetteville, Fayette Nam. And a lot of, obviously, it's the Mecca of the 82nd Airborne, a distinguished class of warfighter, paratroopers and uh 502nd which has been around since world war Two, and so no, i was in
1: the 505th 505th, 505th. that's another
0: yeah. one though that's been around for a while so you know you guys are doing your thing uh you're making a career out of it, or what's going on with you then
1: you know at that time i i I was, I was on the fence and and i i will say one thing that has changed that i've I've seen, and, and there has been obviously, you know, trends and ebbs and flows in the in that, that process too, but at that time when you joined the military and you were a, a young man, you're on your first enlistment, it, it was seen, and this is, you know, this, this was not correct, but the perception was that, okay, if you, you know, you do your first enlistment, you got your college money, you go out and and then you, you you go get a life because you're if you're in the military you're not really having a life you know that was perception it was totally wrong and it was it was completely wrong from from how I saw things but that was the perception and I kind of I, I I fed into that and so you know I, I was not really hot on reenlisting uh, but I, I you know I considered it and 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 I was going to reenlist uh, but then I got a, a job offer. About the same time I was in that reenlistment window, and I got a, a good job offer to get out of the military, and so I ended up getting out. But it, it was it was interesting, and and this is this is probably something that's not spoken about enough, and I think there's 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 probably good reason for that, but there's also good reason to speak about it, and that is. You know, when I joined the military, I joined the military, I literally went down to go see my recruiter and join the military the day after the Panama invasion. And when you talk to folks and they say, hey, you know, why'd you join the military? And, and then the response is, oh, I want to serve my country. Oh, I was doing it for the college money. so, you know, I didn't really do it for any of that stuff. You know, I mean, I did use the college money. I went to the police academy and, and I did all that stuff. But when when I joined the military, I really, really, really. If I'm honest with myself, and I've had three breaks in service and gone back, so I, I kind of can can validate that. And I think there's a lot of guys out there like me that, you know, I, I joined the military because I, I really wanted to know if I had what it – the military goes to war. That's that's what they do. You know, I came from a family that had been, you know, had, had served in, in war. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to serve in war. I wanted to go to war. I wanted to see if, you know – I could win a fight to the death. I wanted to know if you know what a gun battle was like. You know, I wanted to know that stuff. I really did. But I wasn't honest with it because it for one, people didn't speak that way. And, and it, though it was still an all volunteer military, there were a lot of the old timers who who had come up underneath the guys who had, had been in Vietnam and there was a negativity about that that quote unquote warfighter mentality. If you had a warfighter mentality, they called that a lifer. And a lifer was a negative, had a negative connotation. And so guys kind of pushed away from that. But, you know, in finding my own identity, I think that you know, and if I was honest with myself, why I joined the military, I think I joined for the same reason a guy a lot of people join. And I guess I'm speaking to them that you know, it's okay to to have wanted to join the military because you wanted to be a war fighter. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and I think that, you know, especially in today's society it's so politically correct. I mean, you know, Brad and Angelina had this young child that that wanted to be raised outside its its born gender, and everybody was like, "Oh, this is fantastic! Look how open they are with this child. The child can choose and and has decisions and." and everybody was just fine with with them doing that but you say hey uh I identify as a warfighter oh that's horrible that's horrible you know you can't do that you know that's that's bad and it's not bad so uh, you know these things changed over the years and then after 911 of course you know there there came a time that it was okay for warfighters to to just be warfighters and they weren't they weren't looking to be lifers, and they weren't there for the college money. They were there for the fight.
0: Well, you know that's it's interesting that you point that out, and you know, based on the work that you've done, you know, if anybody reads the bio, uh, Boone Cutler, you know, you can basically read into there that there's a there's a higher purpose than just getting college money or serving your country. And I got to tell you that. Yeah, I feel you, brother, because, you know, I wanted to find out if I had the medal. Now, there was nothing going on when I went in and the college uh, fund back when I was in was two, three and four year enlistment. So I went in for three years, got the college fund. But the minute the the first Gulf War broke out, I went down. I would already gotten out like you. I went down and reenlisted. I tried to get back in to go to uh, the first Gulf War. And what I ended up doing was going into an Army Reserve Artillery unit as an NBC NCO. and. We got deployed to to you know, Hurricane Andrew, but you know I, I feel you on that, and that is something that a lot of guys I don't know if they're scared to admit it or you know they've come out more, but that's what service people do they fight wars and it's it's a I'm a non combat veteran which I think gives me an advantage on the show because I don't have to try to do I don't have to one up Boone Cutler I can get Boone Cutler's story in a raw way that helps the overall mission. So uh, thank you for pointing that out, that people go in the military for whatever reasons they might say on the surface, but it's a job that can get rough at times. If that's what I hear you saying.
1: It is a job that can get rough at times, but I think there's a lot of men out there. And if they, if they're honest with themselves, they do want to know, can they win a fight to the death? Can they, Be a warrior. Can they really, really do that? You know, I mean, when their head hits the pillow at night, that that question has has crossed their mind more than a few times, and and they're not very honest about it because in today's world, you know, you know, they don't want to be judged or anything. But I do not, on any level, believe it to be uncommon for men to want to know, in their heart of hearts, if they can be a warrior i I believe that it's it's natural i believe it's innate and i don't think they should shy away from that
0: definitely an awesome viewpoint because i think you're right and you know i had the same conversation with a fellow out on the west coast we were talking about the chivalric code and what the chivalric code you know around the 11th century a code for men warriors how to conduct themselves but there's uh, there's a feminine part to it too but i think number six or seven Boone, is like show the enemy no quarter and that used to be a code of honor for men what a thousand years ago so i i i like the way you phrase that because it's true and and if a man's being honest with himself you do at a core level want to know if you have what it takes to be a warrior so thank you for pointing that out i mean that's that's pretty cool and that's just the way it is you know we 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 we're born men and and that's the that's what we do. So that being said, so we you had just mentioned 911. Tell us about 911. So were you out when 911 kicked off, so to speak?
1: Yeah, when 911 kicked off, I was out and then, you know, 911 happened and I I went back in. It was pretty easy to get back in. I, I literally called the unit I had been in and I I just asked them, hey, are you guys hot? And they said, yeah, we're hot. And I said, okay, well, give me a paragraph and line number. And anybody who's been in the military understands that just basically means, you know, let me have the code I need to, to put on some paperwork and, and I can get back in. And so they gave me a paragraph and line number, which is a slot in the unit. And um, they gave me my slot and I came back in and, and uh, started training and deployed to Iraq in 2005.
0: So that was right before the surge. Well, two thousand five, two
1: thousand six. Yeah, it was before the surge for me because of the timeline. It doesn't feel like it was right before the surge, but, but yeah, technically, it it would have been. You know, it would have been
0: that. So tell us about that first deployment. Whatever you want us to know about it. What was it like? What, what were you guys doing?
1: Well, in two thousand five, two thousand six, uh, I was stationed in Sadr City, Iraq, and it was a lot of war. It was a lot of war and uh you know i have a lot of respect for the guys that served in that area before i was there and after i was there and and, and there is that connection you know guys that chew in the same dirt and, and and all of iraq you know there was there was a lot of stuff going on and it was you know one of the things i could say that they try to they, they try to tell the story in movies but they they really can't get it right in my opinion i don't think they'd ever be able to get it right but and that's the closeness that you have with the people you're with, that are going through the same shit, and that are, are um, you know, fighting the same battles and dealing with the enemy, and and you're taking care of each other. You know, the the closeness that you have with each other is, to me, it, it far outweighs the positivity of that far outweighs any negative any negativity of, of combat, and. And that's the other thing, yeah, I don't think people realize because I don't know how they would, but, you know, understanding, you know, there's something called the human condition. Well, within that human condition, you have relationships. And as part of those human condition relationships, the relationships you develop in combat situations, I think are truly, truly phenomenal. I I don't think there's anything stronger I mean, they're just phenomenal relationships.
0: Can you think of one instance, maybe, or a couple, you know, without rehashing anything that might be troublesome, but can you think of anything that happened in Iraq? I know you were injured there, but that just stands out in your mind like, holy shit, this is the real deal. We're here and we're getting, we're getting the job done or is there anything like that 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 points out in your mind where it just seems so surreal that it was real?
1: There's definitely those things. Um, You know, I guess what you're, are you asking me like, okay, it's one thing to want to go to war, but then all of a sudden you wake up in the middle of a firefight and you're like, holy moly. So this is what it's really like. This is pretty intense. That definitely happened. You know, getting shot at was a common, very, 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 very very common experience in Sardar City. And and the thing about that city was that, you know, the, the Mahdi militia could lock it down. And and they could go toe to toe at any time. You, you really almost felt like you were a prisoner inside that city. I mean, you were always surrounded. They were they always outnumbered, and when they wanted to pop off, they would pop off. And 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 when they did, you you were you were in the you were literally in a three hundred and sixty degree. You were on a three hundred and sixty degree firing range, and, and, and uh, bullets were going both ways, and it, and it could get like that. I mean, they could turn off all the all the lights in the city, and the next thing you know, you're being ambushed. And the ambushes there. We rolled through an ambush one night. It was like eight clicks. I mean, who the hell can organize something like that? I mean, it's it's it's. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people there that uh, at the time that that were to, that were willing to go gun to gun. It happened, and. Yeah, I don't know what to say. It's well, just, what
0: kept what kept you focused? Tell me what kept you focused. You know, and all that nonsense going on. You guys there on mission was the Esprit de Corps. Were you guys just like gung ho? And you know what kept you focused, man?
1: What kept me focused was I I, I I made it personal for me. Made it personal. You know, my 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 feeling of fighting the Mahdi militia and and fighting them for the things that they did. It was personal to me. It wasn't. uh, It was more than a job. It it did become personal. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I'm just don't know what what happened. But you know, when you would see the things that the way the for those listening, the the way the militia would work is it was very mafioso esque, meaning um, they they were very much into controlling the people, and they would they would do horrible, horrific things to their own people to keep them under control. And so there, there was a battle going on the whole time, which was, you know, on my side, you know I was looking at, at promoting empowerment. So the people that were being tortured, abused, the people that were that, that did not know what liberty was, that did not understand what freedom was, for me, it was it was getting those people motivated to fight for themselves. And on the other side of the battle was the militia who was, you know, keeping these people very afraid, very scared, and, and they had their objectives to, to do that, to make sure they would not work with us. So th- that's where the battle was. The battle was over the populace, you know, who could influence the populace to meet the objectives they were trying to meet as a, as a military organization. And so for me, that was personal, you know, trying to just, that was very
0: personal to me. Did you see any changes taking place? Did you, did you feel effective? You know, did you see that transformation take place where, you know, we heard about Vietnam, the hearts and minds, you know, we know we've read about that, but did you, did you see any successes like that taking place?
1: Sure. Sure. I did. And, and, but it was never on a, you know, on a grand scale, but you know, there were, there were successes where. You know, we had successes where uh, members of the the Iraqi army that were, you know, by day they were in the Iraqi army, by night they were Mahdi militia. You know, I mean, there was a segment that was doing both jobs. And at that time, in order to to, to get a job in Sadr City as an Iraqi police officer, the Iraqi army, you had to have a letter from the Mahdi militia to get that job. And so the populace was all, and they were good jobs. They were good government jobs. But that's how the militias took over the governments, is they would be able to control the hiring, be able to control, you know, who, you know, how many people got hired for, for certain government jobs. And you couldn't get those jobs unless you were basically kissing the militias' ass, and they gave you a letter of recommendation, and, and you paid for the jobs. You basically had to bribe people and, and give them a letter of recommendation, and then you, then you got that kind of job but not everybody within those organizations was also a member of the militia so you know getting say uh, Iraqi army troops that were not members of the militia to actually fight other Iraqi army troops or Iraqi police that were members of the militia and getting them to engage each other you know that that was those are significant victories when you're in those environments or or being able to to have a mukhtar that you know a, a, an elder in an area who's who's working for you and basically telling on the militia and explaining how things are being done and who's doing the influence and who the shot callers are and and how to get to them and 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 things like that just getting them to cooperate with you was a victory it's, it's interesting but a victory over there is if they tell someone to go set up an IED on American troops and you've done your job of victory is they will set it up poorly. And now, now a lot of people will be like, well, wait a minute, they're still setting it up on you. Oh, yeah. Because they, they, they're coerced and there's, you know, not all of them, but some of them are, are very much coerced and they, they don't want to be a part of this whole thing. They they just want to go on with their lives. So if if you can establish enough influence with a person who gets told to set up an IED, well, they're still going to do it. But if they do it poorly, well, that's a good day.
0: That's an excellent viewpoint. You know, something the way you described seemed like a hopeless situation with people playing both sides. But, you know, and like you said, you know, incremental, maybe not on the grand scale, but something as significant as setting up a poorly devised IED where it won't hurt and maim or kill people is, is certainly a victory. And even though it's actually... Boone, with all due respect man that's a grand scale brother because the work that your buddies and you did actually saved lives despite the casualties and all the confusion that to me brother is a monumental freaking victory and if you've done that 50 times man you save 50 lives or more so kudos to the work that you guys did over there i mean that means a lot man um yeah that's that's great work to you brother Tell us, you know, I know you wrote the book when you were convalescing back home in the States, but can you tell us anything about the injury? What was going on that day?
1: Well, I think it was, uh, we'd gotten off mission at night. We always did missions at night and it was just better, better to do it that way. So, so I would always wake up, you know, we usually come in, you know, from a mission about zero two, zero three, zero four, you know, about that time frame, And I do the situation report kick that up to higher and then it was you know get some chow go to sleep or go to sleep and and then get some chow and the next morning i had um my guys on the team it said one 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 of the guys had said hey i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna go hit the range tomorrow morning some other guys are going to be on the range too and and so i was like okay yeah go do that and so it just got up the next got up the next morning like anything else I went over to the Haji shop to make a phone call. I think I got something to eat. I don't remember because I, I do remember I was at the Haji shop when the rounds started coming in, and uh, I was at the Haji shop and and mortars started coming in on, on the on the base, and meaning they were shooting at us and uh, they were launching mortars on us. The report on the on on one of the first mortars was at the range, and the the base we were on was very very small, so it, it wasn't wasn 't hard to determine where where these where it was hitting, so the fir- the report on the first round was was over by the range and so I where my guys were, you know where one of my guys was, and so I took off out of the Hodge shop and when I took off out of the Hodge shop and I was running over to the range to go to go check on myers, you know more rounds were coming in and and one got a little bit too close for comfort and rang my bell and and that was the beginning of of a whole lot of problems for me. And it wasn't something that was so significant that, you know, I, I was missing body parts and I needed to be medevaced out, but it was significant enough that, you know, it it had rung my bell and, and I thought I was okay. And I felt like I was okay. I mean, like I said, I wasn't missing any body parts. And I thought if I was hurt, I should have been missing body parts and I wasn't. So, you know, we kind of drove on from that and I, I started to feel the effects of it pretty immediately. Like we were talking about doing the situation reports. I I was the one that would put the sit reps together after each mission. But then I would I would bring the guys, I would we would basically go over the situation report together. So if somebody saw something that wasn't in the report, it was kind of like the time for alibis, like, okay, here's a situation report. Am I missing anything that, that's important that we need to send up? And when I first noticed there was a problem, I'd read the situation report and besides just having pain and stuff like that, that's just a thing. But when I noticed cognitively, like well, there's a problem is when I was putting the situation reports together and the guys would be no, Hey, sorry, color that, that that's all the information is correct, but it's out of order. I was like, what do you mean it's out of order? Cause that didn't happen before. So I was getting things out of order and I was, I was missing details and, and something was wrong, was just wrong. And, um, so from that point, we started doing the situation report together. And I didn't want to alarm the guys because I really did feel like I was okay. And I don't think that's a prideful thing. I don't think that's a unique thing. I think anybody who's, who's deployed, you know, you, you just don't punch out unless you're missing body parts. You just don't. And, and you don't. Because the worst thing for me would not be to be hurt. The worst thing for me would be to be hurt to leave and then somebody else get hurt and I wasn't there. And I think that's a common sentiment as well. So basically, I just, I just adjusted to the situation, and we did the situation report together so I could keep everything in order and make sure nothing was missed. And it was a, a bunch of little tweaks like that. And then towards the end of the tour, and then I got hurt again. It just happens. I, I mean, um, I don't think anybody deployed and kinetically was involved in a war that, that didn't get bumps and bruises and scrapes and concussions and you know stuff like that. Ultimately, we got our um, replacements coming in left, for a right seat, left seat ride. Right. And when they came in, then I, I punched out. And then I went to Walter Reed and, and uh, spent two years there dealing with all the bullshit.
0: Yeah, I hear you, brother. You know, it's, that's the thing about you know the PTS, the wound, if you will. You know, many times, you know, myself as a TBI non-combat in, you know, accident that I had that actually was a DUI where I received a head trauma and, and, you know, you don't see that and, and, and it is cognitively and emotionally, you know, it can be, it can be a grab bag of bullshit. And with me personally, it took me nearly losing everything in my life to finally pull it all back together. And, you know, when you put it like that and you, you you say dealing with the bullshit and it is, it's tough. You might not be missing a limb, but that concussive effect can really play havoc with your mindset and and uh, you know for me 42 years of hiding a dirty dark secret came out man with my head injury and it took me a while to put it back so you know you're putting it back together and that's when you start writing your book and tell us about the book
1: so for one let me let me underline what we already know what what you just kind of said at that time in 2005 nobody was talking about blast wave injuries and when i was injured no helmet on the fob on the base and I could tell you it was intense i mean it it was it, it, when i say rang my bell that's that's not a that that, that is an under exaggeration it 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 was rough it was it was intense but again, i was more i was more happy that i that I wasn't missing body parts and everything was okay uh, you know i felt like, i felt like I got lucky more than I felt like I got hurt. And then when I started getting the effects of that blast wave injury, because the blast wave, you know, it goes through your, your brain, it just tears little, little neurons and fibers, things that connect things to other things that that make everything work well. Uh, and that was that was the major problem. And then, you know, at Walter Reed, then it it, it was time to kind of to unwind all that and figure out what was going on at the same time, they were dealing with, you know, repairing injuries to my leg, repairing injuries to my shoulder, repairing injuries, just trying to fix things in my neck, just trying to, to, to fix all these little things at the same time. You're right. You know, PTSD, you know, that, that was definitely a factor in the whole thing, but I, de- I was not willing to accept it. I mean, the first time I saw a doctor about PTSD, my response to him was, you know, I don't have PTSD and I just, it, it wasn't, there was a lot of stigma around it. You know, I, I came from a family. I was, I, w- I was raised around war fighters who had been in Vietnam. My, you know, my grandfather. And when the topic of PTSD came up, it was, PTSD was, was associated with weakness. And so when they were talking to me about, I, you know, I was the, I was probably the, well, me and, and the, 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 the mentality at the time when someone said ptsd i mean that i mean i would emotionally revolt against that concept is like there's just that's just not possible you know that's just not possible and so it took me a took me a good long time to to kind of come to terms with you know understanding what ptsd was what the effects was and also separating and trying to determine what the effects of PTSD were, as opposed to you know blast wave injuries that have really jacked up my brain at the time, uh, that that ultimately resulted in central sleep apnea, Parkinson's, dementia. You know, I mean, all these things happened. I mean, uh, there's true brain damage. So when you've got brain damage and someone and you're trying to to unravel what PTSD is, uh, it, it's uh, wow. You know, it's it's a motherfucker, man. It it is.
0: It's that's you know, and that's putting it sweetly. You know, it's it, it is, man. It's multi layered. It's emotional. It can be physical. You know, the whole nine yards and. You know, then that's, you know, when you wrote your autobiography and you started on it, you know, did you do that because you had to tell the story and was it therapeutical? And obviously it's yes to all of that, but tell us about the book, man. The
1: book was a coping strategy or it started that way. I started writing the book in Iraq. What happened is I had gone home on leave. I got hurt in August. This, this was the month I got hurt and I got hurt in August and I was dealing well, August and September. I was dealing with the, you know, trying to figure like why the fuck can't I, you know, the memory issues were an issue. Things getting things in and out of in, out of order, you know, things like that w- was a problem. But now I've asked my team since then, like, hey, when we were outside the wire, was I okay then? They're like, Outside the wire, you were golden. There was no problem. Everything was great. But just coming you know being able to relay what happened and that then it was a problem so i was dealing with these issues and so what i started doing is i started taking the situation reports and i started running stories to to different pieces of the situation reports that i would read constantly over and over and over again yep. to keep the narrative of what was happening in my mind so i wouldn't miss things and it was, it was me writing the stories from the situation reports that turned into the book. And I, I didn't realize I was actually writing a book, but when I was home on leave in October, there was a friend of mine that I had met and I had lunch with, and he, had, he was an author. He had written a book. And he was asking me about Iraq, and I was telling him about the situation. And I was telling him all the stories, and I was situ- what was going on with the people. And he's like, wow, you know, I think if more people knew what, what you just said, there'd be more support for the war. And which was important for me because, um, because I, like I tell you, and a lot of guys you come home and, and you're home on leave, you turn on the news, and they start telling stuff that's happening, and you're involved in this stuff. and and then everybody wants to give their opinion, and their opinion is should we get out? Should we stay? All this other stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, you guys have no idea what you're even talking about in order to, to give your opinion about get out, leave, stay. Did we do the right thing? That's all fine and dandy. But, you know, let me tell you about the raid three day, three nights ago where X, Y, and Z happened, and, and it was good and it helped these, you know, I mean, it's just. It very it very much frustrated me watching the news when I came home on leave because and what, listening to people's opinions that were all based on bullshit. I mean, total fucking bullshit. It was like how how can you even have an You think you have an opinion that's educated, but it's really not.
0: To put that into context, what Boone's saying here, you know, we we had a, interviewed a, a female public affairs officer, and, and she said that they were only reporting three percent of good news. Everything else was, was supposed to be like, you just said, bullshit, you know, report the bad stuff that's happening or things that aren't really true. And that's kind of scary, man. When you think that the media is that slanted, but, but sorry, man, I just wanted to say that because it's true.
1: No, it, w- it was absolutely true. And, and so when, when my buddy said, you know, you should write a book, I think, I think there would be more support for the worry. To me, that felt like, I'd never written a book, you know, I mean, I didn't know how to do that. That was, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't exactly great at high school, you know, so <laughs> writing a book was, was like beyond anything I, I thought I could even do.
0: Well, why voodoo? Why voodoo? What, why the name voodoo? Tell us that. What's going on there. That was our call signs. Okay. There you go. So it's deeper than that, but there's gotta be like a second meaning there or something.
1: <laughs> well, well, voodoo, you know, voodoo is, is, the, is the generic term or, or the colloquial term for psychological operations. And so voodoo in Sodder City was, was our call sign, but it's also talking about psychological operations in, in Sodder City. And so that's why it became voodoo in Sodder City. It was about, it wasn't about me, it was about the types of operations and, and the team that was doing it. And which is since, you know, by the end of this year, you know, I would say anybody interested in the book, don't go get it. Wait till the end of this year. And I'm coming out with call sign voodoo, which is a lot more palatable. People will get more out of it. So just, just hold off, wait and get call sign voodoo. But and that's that's the other reason why we call why I changed the name to call sign Voodoo instead of Voodoo in Slaughter City because people didn't know what they were like. Why is there Voodoo in Iraq? You know, I mean, they took it literally, and I, I think it was a little distracting. But you know, when I decided to write the book, it was it was cool because the guy I was having lunch with. Goes, I said, I can't write. I don't know how to write a book. He goes, It's the easiest thing in the world. Let me show you this technique. And he showed me this quick technique on on how to organize a book. And I was like, Yeah, I can totally do that. So. When I got back to Iraq, I started organizing my notes and organizing all these situations that were happening at the same time and kind of overlapping. I started organizing them as I was writing them, and, and literally that, the book that I wrote was, was the information that I, I had to keep straight in my own head because I had been injured. Had I not got injured, I would have never written the book because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have needed to.
0: Well, we're glad that you did. Sorry you had to go through that, but you know, that book in and of itself, you know, there's, you, you know, you, as you describe it, I was thinking of a quote that somebody told me a long time ago. And this is, and again, this is just a, you know, just a detractor here, but, but, but the happiest people I I have known have been those who gave themselves no concern about their own souls, but did their uttermost to mitigate the miseries of others. That's Elizabeth Stanton. and. It's kind of interesting because you're how you described your the process of dealing with concussives and the stuff that you were, you were dealt and how you put it in the story form. That's how I feel about a guy like you. Even though you had to go through that, you're one of the happiest guys I know because you're doing things that actually are making shit happen for people and you're you're helping them with no regard for your own soul. Even though it's therapeutic, you know that. But man, I got to tell you, Boone, you put yourself out there and the impact you've had on reducing the miseries of others is, is quite phenomenal. And I just applaud you for that. I just, anyhow, that's just a sidebar. But, you know, thank you for that. that you, may, you reminded me of that, of that quote. And uh, you may not feel like you're very happy, but I personally think that the things that you're doing only comes from a person deep inside that's happy. And you've found a way, man. to to make your miseries into something actually pretty beautiful to help others so thank you for that anyhow so uh, you're writing the book you got a new book coming out so anybody listening wait to the new book call sign voodoo comes out so you get out you and you and i'm telling you man you have a powerful freaking drive um you get on the radio you're doing so many things to help the war fighters what an incredible mission, man! Tell us about the radio show and how you got started and and you know just tell us about that, man. How did you get that thing going
1: well i got in, uh, I was at Walter Reed for two years and it was it was during the neglect scandal and and all that stuff went into the book and because I wrote the book in country and then when I got out of country, I wrote about being in the hospital and i hadn't i hadn't seen anybody really talk about. You know, being in the hospital and what that was like, and and the zombie dope—you know—the amount of medications that that we were put on, and and it was a chemical prison at the time. And I, and as as I understand, it, it's gotten better. And I don't think anybody was necessarily trying to offer less than standard of care at the time we were going through that. I just think there was an inordinate amount of injured and wounded uh, that they they just didn't know how to deal with. There was there was just. Uh, I don't think they expect as many people to survive at the time uh, of the war, because at that time, unlike other wars, you know, you could be at a level one trauma unit uh, in in very short time, you know, from the battlefield, and so guys were were re- recovering or not recovering, but surviving injuries that they wouldn't normally have survived, and because of the amount of explosives that were being used yeah, as weapons, you know, in in theater there there were a lot of there was a lot of trauma there's a lot of head trauma and, and and so there was they were dealing with injuries that they that America as a country has not dealt with in the, in previous wars in the numbers that they had and so the result of that was there weren't enough doctors there wasn't enough room there was a, a lot of injuries and and uh, and they had at their disposal drugs and they used those drugs and they used a lot of those drugs. And it, that created another effect on top of everything. So, and then the suicide rate was, was, a, was just astronomical. And when everybody was screaming, like, well, I don't know how, how this could possibly happen. I was like, I know exactly how this is happening. And so it, it felt, I felt very compelled to tell that story. And I started going on different radio shows to basically pimp out the book. And so I was on a local radio station in Reno, 99.1 FM, and they did the inter- we did the interview, and, and it, the show went good. And, and then the, the guy who ran the station told me I did a good job. He was very polite. And I said, well, that's good. He said, you know, give me a job. He's like, what? I said, no, seriously, give me a job. And I said, meet me tomorrow for lunch, and I'll explain to you why you should give me a job. And he did. He, he went for it. And so we met and we sat down. We had a conversation. I explained how nobody in the media represents the warfighter community. Everybody, you know, unless you get like Ollie North, who gets on, on the TV for two minutes to talk about an issue, or they have some other military advisor that comes on, they give them two minutes and, and that's it. I said, I want to have a show that is nothing but the warfighter perspective. And I want to call it Tipping Point with Boone Cutler based on the Malcolm Gladwell book. And so, because I really felt like the warfighter community would get to a tipping point, that it would change other things in in the country, but we could not get to that tipping point unless we had a rally point first where we could come together. So that's what Tipping Point with Boone Cutler was all about. It was about being a rally point and it was about understanding and telling not just it was it was allowing america to be a fly on the wall to listen to the warfighter perspective as warfighters spoke to each other like you and i are speaking to each other right now this didn't exist all these podcasts all this stuff this none of that existed It, it was non-existent in 2011 and so uh, and I had gotten well, you know. I mean, I spent that was three years after I got out of the hospital. I mean, the hospital was two years, and then it took me another three years to get better from being in the hospital. I mean, this was a, a long journey. So, as I'm doing this warfighter perspective on any national, international, or social issue with this show, I'm going through stuff myself. You know, I'm getting off the zombie dope. I'm learning about CBD. I'm learning about cannabis. And as I was learning about it, I was learning about it on air.
0: Which is phenomenal. And which is, you know, there you go. That's the, you know, that's a huge victory. And talking about being out in front and you're right, podcast media didn't really exist back in 2011. Some of these subjects were deemed. Maybe too irresponsible or too over the top. People didn't really want to hear. And, and then we find out that post-traumatic stress doesn't just affect war fighters. It affects people. You go through a divorce and, or you go through a, a, an accident like I did or, or other things, financial ruin or losing your dream job or being bullied or sexually assaulted. I mean, you guys were on the cutting edge and opened all of that up to the discussion and you did Boone, you guys made it. It's an international discussion now. So kudos to you, you know, and and I know you're not done, man, but let me ask you this, looking back on it, is there anything you would have changed or would you do it all over again? I can't say
1: there was anything I would, you know, if if I was in the condition I am now, I probably would have made some different decisions because I know more about media you know, uh, but at the time, you know, uh, it it was just a slugfest, man. I, I, and and there was even a time when I first started in radio that it was more like my angry therapy session, you know, uh, because yeah. that's what it was. It was my angry therapy session, and and I started that way. So that was me at that time in that environment, doing you know just slugging it out. But, you know what I know now, and there, there's been more more healing. I mean, I, I've gotten off all the zombie dope. I've gotten off all the site. I've gotten off all the pain meds, and that I had to go through. I mean, I did all that on air, and and, and found CBD on air, and I started using cannabis. Not on air, but I started using cannabis for sleep. You know, during the same time frame. I mean. You know it's legal in in Nevada now, but at the time, you know, I was the guy that was you know trying to hook up with my dealer at the at the Del Taco. You know, what I mean, I that's I mean, you know, I was I was you know doing do you know literally it was like survival mode, and it, and I wasn't afraid to tell about it. Like when I started talking about cannabis in 2010, it was crickets, man.
0: Well, that's what I'm saying, man. You guys opened up the lid, man, for guys like me. That honestly, CBD saved my life, man. If I didn't have those in my recovery nonsense that I went through, actually not nonsense, but it, but if I didn't have CBDs, there's a good chance I might not even be here myself. So thank you. Thank you, man. So let me ask you this. So let me, where does, where's Boone Cutler in five years? What do you, what do you, what's the vision, man? Where do you see yourself?
1: Well, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of the same things I am right now. You know? And there's there's some other media opportunities I'm not going to get into right now, but everybody should pay attention because I think there's going to be some very big things happening. And it's not just, it's not going to be more of the same. It's going to be bigger stuff because, because now I want to bring a lot of attention to stem cell therapy. I want to bring more attention to not just CBD, but other cannab- cannabinoids. I want to bring attention to future hemp industries because there are, there are, I mean, full-on industries that are going to be created around hemp that can, that can change things. And, uh, you know, we want to be able to take care of the, you know, I've had stem cell therapy. And my heart went out, uh, you know, a year ago, and and I had to go down to Panama. I got stem cell therapy for my heart. It saved my life. I, I would have been dead in April otherwise. Mm. And so as part of getting the stem cell therapy, it not it didn't just help my heart but it helped other you know service connected issues that i've had you know my like the the tbi is totally different you know the parkinsons is gone i don't have parkinsons anymore and that's that's a you know dealing with life and you know people don't understand but there's a behavioral there's a cognitive there's a there's a psychological emotional effects that that things like dementia and parkinsons do to people i mean they have psychological effects emotional effects and to go through a stem cell therapy for my heart cuz I was going to die but also reap the benefit on having on the on the brain injury changing i'm not going to say it's gone because one of the things it has done is it's changed to the point that now i realize how bad my memory is where before it was bad enough that i didn't realize so now i'm dealing with with those effects but sharing that story, you know, sharing that story on, hey, you know, stem cells can help traumatic brain injuries. Stem cells can help other service-connected related injuries. So we don't have to be on the drugs. So we don't have to. So we can actually heal instead of just, you know, Masking, deal with, yeah. yeah, deal with the problem in a in a chemical way. You know, we can actually heal. And, and the co- the combination, and the, this is one thing I guess I can't put my finger on directly because I was trying to hunt and peck to find out how I'm going to answer your question. One, you're going to see bigger media, bigger, bigger, bigger media. Two, you know, I, I'm going to be talking more and more about things that, that, that folks – I always try and get in front of things so I can create uh, the conversation within our community and the conversation between the effectiveness of using CBD or cannabinoids uh, and uh, stem cells together is phenomenal, and that conversation is going to get louder and continue to grow and 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 people can be can be can be better served by that. so the things that I've done, you know I'm my own guinea pig you know i'm I'm the guinea pig I, I go through up, it,
0: and it's building up.
1: Yeah. I go, I go through it and I tell other people about it. You know, that's, that's what I do. What do I do in life? I explain things. That's all I do. I just explain things.
0: Well, you know, what do you want? And I know you've been doing this for a while and I know this message is out there. What do you want the the non-veteran population, the non-military population to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? You know, there's, there's such a negative freaking stereotype out there that everybody's, you know, you know, hair triggers and, and, you know, you know, the deal, there's just a, the media plays it up too. what do you want the people to really know about combat veterans? Well,
1: I think that if we just stay on the path that we're on right now, we'll continue to get better. You know, in 2000 and like I said, 2010, there was so much PTSD phobia, 46% of human resources managers at that time said it was difficult to hire a veteran for a job because of PTSD. Forty six percent. Imagine that. Mm. That's almost half, you know, half of use. you and, and they didn't know anything about PTSD. That's what kid that's that's that, that's where the whole thing is was just crazy. It was what they thought they knew about PTSD. That was the PTSD phobia. So guys were not being able to get jobs. They were not being able to find places to live. They're being excluded from, from education opportunities because they would go into academia and there was this PTSD phobia, which created more isolation. And again, these entities didn't even know what PTSD was. You know, They had this, this Hollywood version of PTSD, which is a psychotic break. That's not PTSD. That's what, psychot- that's what a psychotic break looks like. Uh, they're two different things. And so at that time, it was becoming more isolation. But the, here's what's so beautiful. And I want to I give so much credit to, to our community because we really have saved our own lives. Uh, you know, at a time when there was all this PTSD phobia, we were becoming isolated. But then we went from our isolation to finding ourselves in groups and guys were starting to go out and do ruck marches guys were starting to get together for barbecues and and it was basically the same path that the VSOs the veteran service organizations had jumped on you know decades and decades before except our community was doing it together in smaller pods maybe less formalized pods but but nonetheless we coalesced as a group and our community is a group now we are a Uh, We are an aggregate that that some people try to exploit, that some people try to use as just a conduit for information. But, you know, in the last nine years, we have found ourselves. We have found a place. We have found an identity. You know, I have to give credit to all the guys that have been making T-shirts out there and and all all the folks that have been, you know, starting Warfighter-owned businesses because – Those little things became symbols for for our group, our entity, and our identity. They're very, very important. So, uh, you know, there were no podcasts. There were, you know, there were just some smaller t-shirt companies back in two thousand nine. I mean, now they're huge, and and there's everybody's got a podcast, which is great. Uh, And so, in nine years our community created an identity for itself. And I I think that is only going to get better because the beautiful thing is that guys getting out of the military today, they come into a community that they can bitch about. And the reason that's beautiful is because they have the ability to bitch about it because nine years ago, there was nothing that existed that they could bitch about.
0: You're so, you're so correct. And kudos to you on that because, you know, that is, it's groundbreaking. It's cutting edge. It's, it's, it's helping and giving back to the community. So, you know, that being said, there's a couple more questions, man, we could do this for a while, but let me, you know, so there's a, there's a brother or sister making the transition. They're, they're isolated. They're in that bad freaking place. They're not doing too well. And based on your own personal experience and all the BS that you've had to go through and, you know, forging your way to creating this world, what advice can you give them?
1: Battle buddy and a mission, the Spartan Pledge. The Spartan Pledge, it belongs to the community for a reason. It's because it is our ethos turned on its head that applies itself to a warfighter living in a civilian world. It's the Spartan Pledge. The the Spartan Pledge, if you follow the two parts of the Spartan Pledge, um, it's game on. There really is nothing you're not going to be able to accomplish because for one, uh, and let's talk about the Spartan Pledge, my, uh, the, the first part is I will not take my own life by my own hand until I talk to my battle buddy first. The second part is my mission is to find a mission to help my warfighter family. It's two sentences. Well, the first, uh, the first part of that the pledge is, one, you're not going to kill yourself. And if that's really a, a thing that's on your mind before you do it, you have, to t- you have to talk to your battle buddy first. And I find that as soon as that happens, it, it turns off the switch. And and then as soon as that happens and you talk to your battle buddy, now one has become two. And remember, in the military, two is one and one is none. So as soon as you find yourself in a situation of two, you're already better. The second part of the, the Spartan Pledge, my mission is to find a mission to help my warfighter family. Now you're creating two into a group, a much bigger group. And the purpose of the group is to help each other. And once you have those two things, then you have... You have everything you need to accomplish a mission, and a warfighter with a mission is a deadly warfighter, but a warfighter without a mission is a dead warfighter. So if I'm going to offer any information to anybody who's getting off active duty today, going into, into the civilian world, follow the Spartan Pledge. If you actually do and commit to it, and that's our community does. When we take a pledge, it is a very serious thing. It's just not words. We know we have to follow through on it. So if you find your way to that Spartan Pledge and actually, you know, take it to heart, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And not only will you be okay, but you're going to help countless others.
0: Definitely phenomenal work and a phenomenal message. And, you know, one of the best and most useful tips any veteran, especially combat veterans, can can take. You know, what does freedom mean to you, Boone?
1: Well, I'm going to answer that question in a non-political way. Um, <laughs> for for, I'm going to answer you know personally. Freedom is is the ability for me to be able to to make decisions in a healthy way that aren't forced by by drugs, by doctors, by You know some civilian idyllic mentality for me freedom is the ability to to be the warfighter that i am in a civilian environment and whether it's accepted or not it's fine that's fine i can still do it i can still be honest about it and 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 i'm not going to be persecuted for it
0: very well said tell me the boone cutler mantra well, what's the mantra? Do you have a quote or your own quote that you live by fighters fight? Well, there you go. You know, I mean, <laughs> and even though, uh, that's two words, it's probably two of the most powerful w- words in the war fighter community. And that can be taken to a lot of different places, but that's, that's a bond that they cannot take away. And you know, how do people get in touch with Boone Cutler?
1: Oh, golly. They always find a way. It uh, <laughs> <laughs> could, could be a bad thing. I know it's, it's all good, man. <laughs> No, it's all good. I appreciate. Uh, you know, if you if you see me at events, you know, I mean, there you'll see me on social media. I'll post up where different places I'm gonna be. You know, never be shy about saying hello. I love it when people check in and just say, "Hey, Boone, I wanted to say hi, you know, my name is so and so. you know, I, I love that. I, I love pressing the flesh and just being close to other warfighters, and I love doing interviews and talking to people and 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 having the having the conversation. I think everything starts with a word. And from a word, we have a conversation, and that develops meaning. So, if if there's someone out there that, that is trying to get in touch with me, you know, there's a time and a place it'll happen, and we'll show we'll, we'll share words, we'll have a conversation, we'll develop meaning.
0: Well, I appreciate that, you know, I, and I got to tell you from my uh, the bottom of my heart, man, I'm glad that we finally connected, and I'm glad that I was able to uh, get with you on this interview at Straight Out of Combat Radio, and. You know, there's people out there that uh, that you don't know personally, but I can assure you that you've helped hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with your message and your story, Boone, with what you went through. And all I can say is you're a testimony to your granddad and to your dad and and to all of those war fighters and veterans, even non-combat veterans have an appreciation for that, that appreciate guys like you with the leadership and the drive and the freaking headspace to, uh, To help others and anytime you can help others and especially in that community, you're doing valuable deeds for the planet. I don't say that lightly. And and when I say him, I mean him and and I'm just humbled and honored to have Boone Cutler on on our show today. So thank you for being here and for telling your story. And I look forward to when we can press some flesh at some event somewhere in this great land of ours.
1: No, the honor is mine, brother. Thank you very much for what you're doing. It's, it's, It's good. It's amazing. And it's what needs to be done.
0: Well, thank you. You set the path, man. We're on mission. I love you, man. All the way, brother. You gotta them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free. And combat veterans are vital assets, they're not broken.